1: But the truth is, you know, I'm a creative person, and I've had to kind of—I mean, I didn't intentionally do it, but I basically just, you know, created my own career because I just decided I would sacrifice in order to do the things that I like to do. That's really what it is. You know, I always loved music. I grew up as a musician. I grew up in the church and playing gospel music and so forth. And then I moved into jazz. And then when I came to New York as a young guy, and I was going to graduate school, Columbia, I was. I could see that the, the future in music for me as a saxophonist was just grim. I mean, because there were so many great saxophonists who were better players than I, who practiced more and who really wanted to play the saxophone as a, as a storytelling instrument. And that's how most creative stuff happened. You follow the muse and after a while the characters, they leap out the desk drawer or they sit up and then you follow them out the room and if they're any good, they, they actually move out the room. And they they get moving it. And then plot starts to show itself. And welcome back to The Writer
0: Files. I am still your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. New York Times bestselling author and National Book Award winner, James McBride, spoke to me about eschewing literary fame, his friendship with Spike Lee, and his latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. James is a musician, screenwriter, and award-winning author of New York Times bestselling Oprah's book club selection, Deacon King Kong, the National Book Award winner, The Good Lord Bird, now a Showtime limited series starring Ethan Hawke, and the American classic, The Color of Water. His debut novel, Miracle at St. Anna, was turned into a 2008 film by Oscar-winning writer and director Spike Lee, with a script written by McBride. The author's latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store was an instant New York Times bestseller and named a must read for the summer by New York Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Time, Town and Country, and others. Described as a novel about small town secrets and the people who keep them, it begins in 1972 when workers in Pottstown, Pennsylvania find a skeleton at the bottom of a well. The New York Times Book Review called the book a murder mystery locked inside a great American novel. James received a National Humanities Medal from President Obama, for humanizing the complexities of discussing race in America. He's also a distinguished writer-in-residence at NYU. In this file, James and I discussed why he finds no joy in being well-known, how Color of Water changed his career, the lessons he learned from Michael Jackson, the hyperbole of the literary world and standing on the shoulders of giants, how we're all more alike than we are different, why writers must seek out their mentors, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of the Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. (laughs) Hey, man, thanks for taking the time to do this. I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. Of course, I have uh, New York Times bestselling author and National Book Award winner and so much more, James is joining us. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I cannot wait to just pick your brain about all things writing today.
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm uh, delighted to help if I can. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, we'll see how, I mean, I'm not as smart as people think, but you know, whatever you say is, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best, you know?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, well, you know, in truth, I mean, you seem very humble and, um, I know that you said your family's kind of getting a kick out of this, uh, this press junket, but, um, yeah, what's the vibe over there? How, how are you feeling these days?
1: Um, I'm, I'm all right. I mean, it, you know, this is, this is a, you know, this is part of the job that, you know, that, that I suppose you, you always hope will happen. And, you know, it's happened for me already. So I feel a little bit guilty about it, you know, because I know there there's a lot of other people who've written a lot of great writers who deserve attention. But it's OK. I mean, uh, I'm not complaining about it. You know, um, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it, it's uh well, you know, you just go with it. I mean, it's not, you know, you just you just do. I mean, look, when you, you know, there's not a, there's not a lot of joy in being, in being uh, a well-known person, really. You know, it, it's, it's because it means that if you say something to somebody and it's wrong, they always remember you for saying that, and, uh, and you don't want to be remembered that way. So it's, it's just kind of the equivalent of like, when you go out of your house, if you're talking to people who know books you have to put on the mental equivalent of like a tux because you don't want to say, you know, where's my coffee or, you know, how come you didn't, or, you know, well, that's dumb, you know, it it doesn't makes you feel like a little bit in the spotlight too much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are no stranger to the spotlight. And, um, you know, I want to talk about this really fascinating career because, you know, it seems like if we can kind of wind the clock back as we do with so many authors, of course you weren't always, National Book Award winner, James McBride. You weren't always shaking hands with President Obama um, and receiving a National Humanities Award. You know, but you're a, you're a sax man and, and you wanted to be a journalist and, and you've done all these fascinating things. You've hung out with Spike Lee and written plays and, and screenplays for movies. and So yeah, take us back and, and reminisce a little bit because it's a fascinating story. And I'm sure our listeners would just be kind of thrilled to take a little... Trip down memory lane with you.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I went to public schools in New York. I went to Oberlin, and then I got a master's from Columbia, and I worked as a journalist for nine years, and then I quit, and uh, and uh, I worked as a musician for about nine years, and then uh, during that time, I wrote *The Color of Water*, and then from there, I've just basically written books and <clears throat> done as much music as I, you know, as my literary career would allow. But the truth is, you know I'm a creative person, and I've had to kind of I mean, I didn't intentionally do it, but I basically just you know created my own career because I just decided I would sacrifice in order to do the things that I like to do. That's really what it is. you know, I always loved music. I grew up as a musician, I grew up in the church and playing gospel music and so forth. and then I moved into jazz. and then when I came to New York as a young guy, and I was going to graduate school, Columbia, I was I could see that the the future in music for me as a saxophonist was just grim. I mean, because there were so many great saxophonists who were better mm. players than I, who practiced more, and who really wanted to play the saxophone as a as a storytelling instrument. And I was more always more of a composer. I never pushed, you know, that hard to get in line behind these great horn players who, who were in New York. You know, I, I came to New York around just around about a year after Wynton Marcellus arrived and his brother Branford. These guys are on another level, you know, Donald Harrison and Terrence Blanchard and all these guys. And anyway, but I could always write and I like to write. And so I was into social change. I ended up working at the Wilmington News Journal as a government reporter, first as an intern, then as a government reporter. From there, I went to the Boston Globe, then the People Magazine, and then from there to the Washington Post. And I quit that, I think I was just short of 30. And I moved back to New York and I just played music for a long time. And during that time, I wrote my first book. And then, you know, one book led to the next and to the next. And, you know, I wrote a couple screenplays and, you know, little of this TV a little bit. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff, but mostly I've just done, just always been willing to sacrifice and work in order to do the things I like to do. I've always done what I, what I like to do. When I say that, I mean, I, you know, I, I always supported myself, but and in doing so, I had a lot of jobs and I had a lot of experiences that helped me, you know, and, and people who, who, you know, who were, who were helpful. I never followed what everybody else was doing. I just followed what made me happy, I suppose. Yeah, were were you
0: ever kind of at um, a place, I guess maybe after, um, you know, the, the reception of your debut novel, were you ever at a place you know kind of as things progressed and, and you became more as you m- mentioned you're just kind of more well known and you know people want a piece of that i guess but you know which sh- you know hanging out with guys like spike lee and and making films and and um telling the stories of, of these great jazz musicians were you ever just kind of in awe of, of you know just being able to kind of
1: well, initially, rub, rub
0: elbows with with not well, friends?
1: well i don't hang out with nobody I mean, when I worked with Spike, you know, I I worked, you know, he'd call, you know, when he did, he did one of my books as a movie. I wrote the script, you know, I would write, you know, number of pages, we'd meet. And as soon as that meeting ended, you know, I went home. I never was a guy who hung out with anybody. But I like Spike, and he's a friend, and he's a talented cat, and he's a very loyal person. And, uh, you know, people really don't know him that well. And, make a lot of assumptions about him, but people who work with Spike respect him a lot. They adore him. And if you ever work with him, you would see why, because he is a very good person. He was well-raised, and -hmm. his family is very respected in Brooklyn. But I don't hang out with anybody. Spike moves in a world that's not mine. You know, whoever I work with, I work with him, and the work is done, I put my hat on and leave. I traveled with Michael Jackson when I was 26, I think I was. I was with People magazine and I covered him exclusively for six hmm. months. And I was the only reporter that he met with during that time, I think. and um, and I, I saw what the business did to him and his family. I thought they were wonderful people. His mother is just a wonderful person. and I saw what Hollywood was like, you know and I saw it like I was dropped into it. I literally went to work one morning. And I never liked working at People Magazine, by the way. I couldn't stand it. But, you know, Hmm. I needed the money. I needed to work. I was there. I was there maybe two or three weeks. I came into the office one day. They said, well, Michael Jackson's publicist is getting on the plane to go to California to, you know, get started for this giant tour. This is 1984. This is before the age of, you know. Beyonce and Taylor Swift with the $800, $11,000 tickets, but they were, (laughs) the the victory tour was a big deal. Anyway, they said, get on the plane, you know, go out there with the guy if you can and find out what's happening. And I said, okay, but I didn't have any money to get on the plane because I didn't even have a credit card. So all the editors, they just pulled out cash out their pockets. I went to the airport, I bought a ticket and I got on the plane right next to the guy. I mean, in those days you could do that, you know. And then I ended up just staying in California. I stayed out there three months. I never went home after that. I, I didn't come home for months because Amazing. you know the story was hot and I was the guy who had access developed access to the Jacksons and so forth. I didn't like it, but I did the job, you know. I didn't like Hollywood. I could see right away that it wasn't my world. You know, it just I don't know how to describe it. You know, the first time I went to a rehearsal, Michael Jackson's rehearsal. I think it was called SIR. It was in a big studio out there. And I asked the guy, I walked in, I said, do you know what time it is? And the guy had a watch on. And he shook his hand as he looked at the watch and he shook his hand. He said, you know, David Bowie gave me this watch and this damn thing just doesn't work right. And I said to <laughs> myself, what kind of world is this, man? You know, but that's, you know, I didn't like it. And I but you know, that was the job. So I just did it. But afterwards, you know, after seeing what happened to it, Michael and his, family and how the, the stress and the struggles they were under from every side, you know, rich, poor, white, black, every struggle they could, you know, they they went through that, you know, and seeing how that tour, I said, well, this is not the world for me. So I've never been a person who really liked that world or, you know, I mean, it's a, I mean, there are people in it who are wonderful and they're extremely competent. Some of them are brilliant, but I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm just a, uh, you know, I, I stay to who, what I know and who I am, which is just, you know, just, I, I guess so as I just, I, you know, I want to be someone that helps people, I guess. I mean, I, I just, it's not my world, the whole thing of, you know, we're having lunch with the the, the, the beautiful people, blah, 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 you know, the beautiful people are, are the teachers that, that, taught, that teach our children and the librarians that stand up, you know, for the rights of authors to you know, to create books that, that young people should read. Mm. Those are my heroes.
0: Yeah. 100%. Um, Well, that's fascinating to hear you talk about it. And of course, you know, you, you seem very grounded and down to earth. And I think some people would call you a literary lion and at least a a celebrity in your own right. Um, Because, you know, I mean, I know LA times has called you this decade's great American novelist. And do you feel like, you know, I mean, Obviously, hearing you talk about it, it doesn't doesn't really seem to s- stick to you. But do you feel like y- you'll leave a legacy behind that that you know we can take some important notes away from? And I,
1: look, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, and Ralph Ellison, Toni Morrison, uh, Joyce Carol Oates—those kinds of people have legacies. I, I don't know that I'm in that in that category, and I don't think it really matters that much. To readers, I think what's important is that that we, you know, that we as writers um, try to illuminate the world, like so many writers before us have done. I mean, you know, would that Herman Melville have lived to see how much joy and illumination he has given to people? I mean, I got a chance to thank E. L. Doctorow in person for for his work because I always just admired his work so much. He didn't get a chance to thank. Heinrich von Kleist, who was a German writer who who you can see influenced E.L. Dachshund so much because that was, you know, he, von Kleist wrote many, you know, long before Dachshund lived. So I think that in the black community, there's this saying, each one teach one. You know, you know, my job is to, to, you know, to, I stand on the shoulders of the writers who have come before me, whose job was to illuminate things for people. And so I, I, I don't, you know, some of this hyperbole in, in the literary world is, is not really, it's, it, I don't know how to respond to it. I mean, I, I'm, you know, look, you're lucky when you can make a living as a writing, writer, that, you know, or any creative arts, especially in the United States. Which has so little respect for artists and for writers, in particular, and composers, particularly American composers. If you can make a living at, at that, you are a very lucky person. So, in that regard, I am very lucky. On the other hand, you know, I've worked very hard, and you know, and it it's paid off for me. But no, I don't. I don't. I mean, I just hope that uh, you know that. Uh, man, I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I don't pay. Look, I don't pay attention to that kind of talk around my work because. <laughs> One day you're the greatest thing in the world, and the next thing, there are always people who are you know you're on top one day, you're on the bottom rail the next. But again, the real heroes are people like Mrs. Alexander, who, who was a kid, I was at kindergarten, and Miss Abdullah, who was my second grade teacher, and they told my mother, "Oh, James, he is something. He's very smart." <laughs> I <don't know laughs> what to about, but, but I still remember my mother saying that, and. Um, And I'm grateful to them. I mean, really, we've got to figure out what's important in our society. And what you know, you can tell everything about a society the way they treat children and old people. And the way we do both, there's some work to be done.
0: Well, uh, it's an important message, and and of course, um, you know we have uh, your latest um, getting quite a bit of acclaim. And I know you're 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 not listening um, to the uh, to the noise right now, but you got a tour coming up for the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which has got to be is it is it exciting for you to get out and, and talk to people about the work, or is it exhausting?
1: Well. You know, I, I get a chance to thank people for for you know reading my books and for supporting writing and and you know the literary publishing industry. But no, it's not. You know, I've I've been touring for a long time, and um, I, I don't I don't look forward to it. You know, flying airports and all that all that's involved. Uh, but it, it's nice to re- meet meet people and and to you know to, to to chat with them. You wish you had time to talk to. I often wonder when people come to readings and all that kind of stuff, like what they do and who, you know, where they <laughs> live. Did they drive to get, did they take the bus and you know, do they have kids? And You know, does he have grandchildren? You know, does, does she have a a motorcycle? I mean, I just wonder, you know, but I, is you can do is just, just say thank you very much. And most of the time people are very nice. Sometimes they bring a little bit of their mental baggage to your appearance and then they'll raise their hand and say, how come you didn't? You know, why don't you do, you know, writers are not that powerful. I mean, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we, we just do the, the best we can. And so, um, look, when I wrote the, the, the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, I really, like with most books, I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew I wanted to write a book about a camp, about a camp director that, that ran a camp for him. disabled children. For lack of a better term, who really affected me a lot, and I wrote several chapters, and none of them were good except for the chapter that began with this Jewish theater owner named Moshi,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how, and it was so funny, it was just you could just feel his character, you know, surge into your body, and so I just discarded the rest of the stuff and followed Moshi into his world, and that really is how the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store was created, and that's how most creative stuff happens you follow the muse and after a while the characters they leap out the desk drawer or they sit up and then you follow them out the room and if they're any good they they actually move out the room and they they get moving and then plot starts to show itself
0: Hmm. that's fascinating um to hear you talk about your process and um yeah i mean when you're kind of in flow state are you are you like a morning writer are you like just can you describe like a a good period for you when you're when you're like as you mentioned, they're kind of the characters are moving for you, and you're and you're kind of channeling this thing. And and you know, is there is there kind of an improvisation piece to uh, it yeah, for you as yeah, sure,
1: well? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you you get up. I get up at four thirty, five o'clock every morning uh, when I'm writing, and hit it. Um, in the case of the the heaven earth grocery store. I spent a lot of time researching. I started researching that book back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I Went to a uh, mental hospital in Norristown, PA, and spent several months, you know, in and out of that place. The people were kind enough to let me let me in. Let me, you know, and I interviewed several people who were involved, and I read through cases, and and then I stopped because I, I just wasn't. The book wasn't centered. There was no center. I didn't want to write about a mental hospital. It was too. Too depressing and too difficult and too complicated. So I pushed into, you know, uh, I think The Good Lord Bird came and then Deacon King Kong, but I always had this other book that, you know, you, you always have, you're always pregnant. You always got mm-hmm. two or three things in the hopper. So I finally, you know, came back to this and, and started pushing into the side of Jewish life that I've always been interested in since I, ever since I wrote The Color of Water, learning about anti Semitism in the South and the long and difficult journey of Jewish people in this country, and it just sort of came together. You know, I discovered Pottstown. There's a real Pottstown, and and started learning about Jewish history early in the early 20th century here in the United States. Part of which I I'd, I'd already learned because of my own mother. And my own my own Jewish mother was raised in the South, and it just you know these things start to come together because what you really what you come to understand after you've been living long enough is that we're all pretty much the same. You know, if you get in a room full of Irish people, they say, Irish are the funniest people in the world. And they are, man. They are funny. But <laughs> then if you get in a room full of Italians, they say, oh, man, Italians are the funniest. And that's true, too. And black folks will tell you the same thing. And don't get Dominicans started on what's funny. And <laughs> God, there's nobody funnier than Jewish people. I mean, you know, because what connects us, <laughs> really, is, you know, the human, the human comedy. And so if you if, if as a writer you find ways to connect us to show us that we are much more dif- like alike than we are different, and you can make and you can make that connection, then you have a story. I mean, it's easy to make money showing how different we are. I mean, and that's really what some people in our society have decided, many politicians have decided to do, and they'll be punished for it after this life is over. I'm sure of it uh, when they when their time is up when they when they try to check into heaven, if there is a heaven, and they try to check in, they'll find, and their name is not on that on that short list. But for those of us who want the world to begin to get better, we have to find ways to show how we are alike and celebrate that in a way that's not corny and say, you know, uh, you know like hold hands, we are the world type of, you know. You want to pretend it's like a TV commercial. But the truth is, you know, with so much negativity in the world, the miracle is that we manage to get along and love each other at all. Because the power brokers want us to—they want—they like it when we, when we, uh, we go at each other, because they can sell more guns and butter and potato chips and whatever else they're selling. And then at the end of the day, go to the whatever religious affiliation they have and pray for forgiveness and claim that you know God has blessed them. I mean, come on, you know. So, I don't. I don't buy into that, that bit of nonsense. I'm just, just. I'm, I'm. I try to be honest about what, what really works, and what really works is that everybody wants the same thing. You know, they want peace. They don't want to be afraid. They want to have fun, and so that's what I try to do in my books. You
0: know, um, powerful messages, and and James, I know you have limited time here. We got to let you go here, which is sad. But we pray that you come back and chat with us again in the future. Um, and as you have said, yourself, love, humor, and kindness are the meat and vegetables of a good story. And a uh, fascinating storyteller you are. We appreciate you. Um, any one last final pearl to your fellow scribes on just
1: how to keep going? I forgot that this is about, this is, a, I, now, I, now I feel bad because I feel like I'm talking about myself. <laughs> You've been great. <laughs> I, I, I think for young writers, they have to remember a couple of things. One is that the apprenticeship business that that existed when I was young doesn't exist anymore, at least in newspapers and magazines. I mean, in newspapers because they aren't a news. I mean, they are great newspaper newspapers that exist, but the the avenues are tight because they they, they you know there are not as many newspapers, not as many small newspapers with these wonderfully gifted editors who helped. So young writers have to find they have to find mentoring either outside of. Uh, either through academia or outside of academia. They have to find people who who read their work, even if they have to just do writing groups. They have to write every day. They have to be, don't fall in love with your words, fall in love with your ideas. I'm not kidding when I said I wrote several chapters of the Heaven and Earth grocery store, and it described all of them, except for what now lives as chapter one with Moshi, uh, opening his theater to uh, the great clarinetist. Everything else, every chapter of that book, after chapter one is new, but the book was, it, I didn't, and I didn't title the book. So don't title the work, just follow the characters and they will find the story and write consistently every single day. Even if you, even if nothing happens, just sit there and drink coffee. Cause if an idea happens to come, you got a pen and paper or a computer in your hand and don't write at a coffee shop for God's sake, <laughs> all you're gonna looking at somebody else, go somewhere else and don't tell nobody nothing about what you're doing. And right. When I wrote the color of water, I was in a, Jimmy Scott's band, we were traveling by van and going all over. I never told anybody in the band I was writing the book. Because, you know, one, one negative word would bust my balloon. So I just did it. So just do it and just keep doing it. And at some point, if you're good and if you're dedicated, somebody will pay you for it. They might not pay you enough, or they might not pay you in the way that you want to get paid. But writing chooses you. You don't choose it. And since you're chosen, go with the choice.
0: That's amazing, Tim. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time, your um, verve, and your uh, overall uh, affect is, is really, really sweet to see and be around. But um, do come back in the future, and um, best of luck with the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store.
1: All right, well, thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, Simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.